I'm David Creech, and welcome back to my presentation of God's Amazing Plan. In this fifth lesson in the series, what I've called Puzzle Piece Number 5, we're going to talk about sin and the consequences of sin. We begin by asking the obvious question, what is sin? <clears throat> but before we answer that question specifically, We'll get back to it. I want to ask another question. Does the creator of the universe have every right to set laws into place and then expect or, or even demand that those laws be obeyed? Does he have that right? Well, of course he does. When we can create our own universe, then we can create our own laws, can't we? And we can be just as strict or just as lenient as we want to be. But in the meantime, we need to bend our will to match his will. You know, there may even be times when we need to break our will in order to match his. He also has every right to determine what the punishment will be when we break those laws. Now, we might look at his laws or his punishment and say to ourselves, well, that doesn't seem fair. Parents, have you ever heard your children say that to you when you tried to punish them? That's not fair. Did you ever just want to say, what's not fair about it? You were told not to do it. You were told what the consequences would be if you did do it. And you did it anyway. What's not fair about that? Well, isn't it just the same with God? Doesn't he tell us in his word what to do and what not to do? And doesn't he tell us what the consequences will be if we refuse to obey him? Yet, we often do it anyway. We can't turn around and then say, that's not fair. Maybe it doesn't seem fair to us that someone that society considers a good person, someone who always tries to do the right thing, who's a law-abiding citizen, who, who gets along well with others, is kind and caring, perhaps even someone who goes to church somewhere on a regular basis, someone that has all of the characteristics that society would use to classify them as a good person. Maybe it doesn't seem fair to us that such a person could potentially spend an eternity in the fires of hell. But the reality is, it's absolutely irrelevant whether we think something God has said is fair or unfair, isn't it? As we pointed out earlier, God said in Isaiah 55 and verse 8, and I'm paraphrasing part of it this time, uh, what you think doesn't matter. What matters is what I think. Because your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. Uh, the very next verse, Isaiah 55 and verse 9, goes on to say, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I sometimes use the example of a monkey 
star staring at a calculus problem. We have no more chance of understanding the mind of God, I mean, outside of what he has revealed to us, than a monkey does in understanding a calculus problem. So we need to learn to accept God's ways, even if we don't always understand them. We need to learn to accept God's ways even if we don't agree with them. Why? Because they are God's ways. Because they are God's thoughts. When we talked about the gospel earlier, one of the points we emphasized was that it must be obeyed. The sad reality is that there will be many whom we would consider good people that just don't obey the gospel. They don't obey the will of the Father, as we talked about earlier. And so God must uphold the sentence. There, there is no greater example of that than what we read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. I don't have that passage up here on the screen, but they are the words of Jesus himself saying, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, we're talking about the judgment, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness, that's sin. Now, not that I can improve on this example. I, I certainly can't. But I do want to share with you another one of my illustrations. Suppose that we are kidnapped. And our kidnapper puts us in a large room. It's a very nice room. There's a big screen TV on one wall. In front of that is a comfortable recliner. There's a vast library of music and, and, and movies and video games to keep us mindlessly entertained, mindlessly occupied for long periods of time. In the corner is a desk with a computer and high-speed internet access. On the far wall are shelves and shelves full of books for those that actually like to hold a book in their hands while reading it. There's an adjoining room with a comfortable bed for sleeping, and we're told that anything we desire is essentially a Google search and a mouse click away. Food, companionship, every conceivable comfort. Well, it doesn't sound like such a bad deal, does it? especially since we were kidnapped and all. The only problem is, one of the books that we discover in the library of this room claims to be from the architect and builder of this room. And he has stated in this book that this room has explosives packed all around it. And that at any moment, those explosives will detonate and the room and everything in it will be completely destroyed. Everything will melt 
with fervent heat. We can't know when it will happen. It could be within the hour, or it could be days, months, or even years. But it will happen. And when it does, if we are still in this room, we will die. But the architect goes on to say in this book, however, there is a narrow way of escape, and I paid a great price to put it there. That open door on the far wall leads to a safe room. My son, my only son, gave his life building that safe room for you. If you are in that safe room when the explosives detonate, you will be spared. As long as you are in that safe room, absolutely nothing, not even your captor, can harm you. All you have to do is go through the door and close it behind you, separating yourself from this room. Now be honest. If we stay in that large, comfortable room any longer than the amount of time it would take us to sprint across the room and through that door to safety, do we deserve what's coming to us? If we say, yeah, yeah, explosive, safe room, got it. Nice to know information, but check out this room. I really like it here. I'm just going to hang out here for a little while. If we say that, but knowing that those explosives could detonate at any moment, do we deserve what's coming to us? Will it matter whether or not we were a good person? I mean, we could be the best person in the world by the world's standards, but if we don't walk through that door, if we don't take that way of escape that's been offered, we are going to die. Now, to extend the illustration to what we've been talking about, that room represents the world and the deceitful pleasures and the distractions of it. God has told us that this world and everything in it will be completely destroyed that it will melt with fervent heat, and that it could happen at any moment. But we all deserve to die in that room. When we first sinned against God, we were taken captive by Satan. And the real irony is uh, Satan didn't kidnap us against our will. We went willingly. And the lure to stay in that room is so powerful that most will never leave, despite the warnings. In fact, the lure to be in that room is so powerful that many who do walk through the door to the safe room and close the door behind them will reopen that door and return to this room time and time again each time at the extreme peril of their souls. 
And yet God, as the grand architect, and because of his love for us, paid a huge price, sacrificing his only son in order to provide that way of escape. We've done absolutely nothing to deserve it. Well, that's called grace. So let me ask this question. And this is where I've been going with this illustration. Does it somehow diminish the love of God or the grace of God or the mercy of God if someone chooses not to take the way of escape? Does it somehow diminish the love of God if someone chooses to take the way of escape and then they later choose to ignore it? Absolutely not. But he still leaves the choice up to us. We always have that choice. Earlier we asked the question, what is sin? And admittedly, we've covered a lot of ground just getting back to this, but quite simply, sin is what God calls it when we break one of his laws. 1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is transgression of the law. The word sin actually means missing the mark. God has established boundaries for us in the form of laws. And when we go beyond those boundaries, we have indeed missed the mark. All sin is therefore bad, and there are always consequences. Part of our problem with sin is that we... we often don't look at sin the way a holy God looks at it. We don't truly understand how serious sin is in his eyes. We have a tendency to rank sin in degrees of severity by how we see it, not by how God sees it. We might agree, for instance, that murder is really bad. Hopefully we can agree on that. But that hating someone is okay, especially if they have wronged us in some way. We might agree that lying in order to hurt someone is bad. But lying in order to avoid hurting someone, little white lies we like to call them, well, that's okay. We might agree that sexual immorality, that is, sex outside of marriage, for instance, is bad. Unless you really, really love the person. And then it's okay. But God teaches us in his word that all of these things are examples of disobedience. And as we've already mentioned, all disobedience is sin. All sin is bad in the eyes of our creator. And therefore carries serious consequences. And speaking of consequences... <clears throat> the primary consequence of sin is death, as we see there in Romans 6.23. That word death simply means a separation. And there are two kinds of death. There's the death of the body and the death of the soul. The death of the body is the separation of the body from the soul or the spirit. 
James 2.26 tells us that the body without the spirit is dead. We already talked about how this body is just a temporary vessel. And when it dies, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7 tells us that it will return to the dust of the earth. And that the spirit will return to God who gave it. The death of the body is a consequence of Adam and Eve's first sin in the garden, uh, the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19. So, yes, we inherited that consequence. There's absolutely nothing we can do about that, though many have tried. But, of course, before we go blaming Adam and Eve, we need to remember that we have all sinned, Romans 3.23. The other death, the death of the soul, is the separation of the soul from its creator, from God, for all eternity. Revelation 21.8 refers to this as the second death. And if the death of this physical body is the first death, then the death of the soul would be the second death. Now, Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20 tells us that this death is the result of individual sin, not something that we inherit. Now, the consequences of sin can be either temporary or eternal. Now, as the name implies, temporary consequences have an end. Now, they may not end until this body dies, but they do have an end. Eternal consequences, on the other hand, have no end. Although it would be good to avoid all of the consequences of sin, it is the eternal consequences of sin that we must do whatever it takes to avoid. Let me use another one of my examples to illustrate. <clears throat> Let's say that somebody commits murder. They're brought to justice. They're sentenced to life in prison without parole. What would you say is the obvious temporary consequence of that sin? Life in prison without parole. What would you say would be the eternal consequence of that sin? Eternal punishment in the fires of hell. Now let's take the illustration a step further and say that after being incarcerated, the same person hears the gospel. They are moved by it. They repent of their sins and become a Christian. Does the temporary consequence of their sin go away? No. They must continue to deal with that sentence, life in prison without parole. But does the eternal consequence of that sin go away? Yes. We could say the same thing about any sin. I mean, wouldn't it be great if, you know, when we became a Christian, all those temporary consequences that have accumulated from years of making bad decisions, wouldn't it be great if all of that would just disappear? Yeah, that would be great, but unfortunately it doesn't work that way. We still have to deal with with those consequences. 
However, we can rejoice in knowing that when we become a Christian, those eternal consequences do disappear. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26, Jesus asked his disciples a very pointed question. He asked, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We need to ask ourselves that same question. What am I willing to give in exchange for my soul? Or perhaps another way to ask that would be, what am I willing to give up in exchange for my soul? We already pointed out that our souls should be our most prized possession. In, in fact, a priceless possession. Is there anything here on this earth that we would not be willing to give up in exchange for our soul? Is there any one person or group of people, friends perhaps, that we would not be willing to give up in exchange for our soul? If, if that person or those people keep pulling us in an undesirable direction, Becoming a Christian may mean that we need to change our friends. Are we willing to pay that price? Is there anything we possess here on this earth that we would not be willing to give up in exchange for our soul? Is there any activity that we enjoy engaging in that we would not be willing to give up in exchange for our soul? the movies and TV shows that we watch, the books and magazines we like to read, the places we like to go. But just something to think about as we consider the cost of becoming a Christian or in remaining a Christian. We mentioned earlier that the gospel or good news was that a way has been made for us to avoid the bad news. This is it. This is the bad news. That because we have sinned against our Creator, in His judicial system, we all deserve to be sentenced to life in prison without parole. That'd be bad enough if we were simply talking about this life in prison without parole. I have a hard time imagining what it would be like to have all my freedoms taken away from me for the rest of my life. But we're not talking about that, are we? We're, we're talking about an eternity. We're talking about no chance of ever leaving a place that has been variously described in the Bible as a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8 and verse 12. A place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, Mark 9, 44. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I don't know exactly what that means. Jesus is using human language to express the inexpressible, but I know enough to know that it can't be good also described as a place where the inhabitants will be tormented 
day and night, forever and ever. Revelation 20 and verse 10. You know, we can generally put up with a lot of things, a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of suffering, a lot of inconvenience. If we can somehow know that there will be an end to it, if we have a hope that one day what we are experiencing will be over and things will be better. But here we are talking about a place that is so much more than just an inconvenience. And worst of all, absolutely no hope that it will ever end. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, Jesus offers what at first appears to be some pretty strange advice. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. By the way, similar language is used over in Matthew chapter 18 and also in Mark chapter 9. Jesus wasn't telling his disciples that they needed to maim their bodies, to pluck out eyes and cut off arms and legs in order to avoid going to hell. Recall that this body will never leave this earth. When it dies, it will return to the dust of the earth. We will have a new body, a, a transformed body, but that's a subject of another lesson entirely. No, what Jesus was trying to impress upon them was that hell will be so bad that they should do whatever it takes to avoid going there. Earlier we talked about the cost. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? The truth is that giving up certain people or possessions, if that's necessary, or activities that may be contrary to God's will can be just as painful as radical amputation. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now that concludes our lesson on sin and the consequences of sin and leads us right in to puzzle piece number six, uh, a greater discussion about the actual penalty for sin. The things that we've been discussing up to this point are vitally important. So I appreciate your kind attention and look forward to seeing you in the next class.